Uh, it's great to be with you. Like I said before, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's so good to be journeying with you. I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have one with you, you can use the one in the pew back in front of you or the one on your phone or electronic device. And open to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Yes, I know that that's not the book of Acts. Some of you are a little concerned. Um, I, we've been journeying through, if you've been with us, through the book of Acts. We're uh, hitting pause on that study through much of the fall as we uh, jump into, uh, over the next couple weeks, a little bit of a reset of our vision as we do each fall. Uh, each September, we kind of look back at um, who God's called us to be and what that looks like in a practical way for us. And then we're going to jump into our fall practice series, which I'm really excited about. I actually think it's going to be really meaningful for many of us as we journey through, and so I'm really excited about that as well. So that's where we're going. But today, I want us to kind of come back to who we are and who we are called to be as followers of Jesus. And so uh, the worship team did such a great job of setting the stage for that as it relates to identity because uh, the heart of who we're called to be is identified by Jesus, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want to start with a a quote from one of my favorites. You know, we need to have a Dallas Willard quote if we're going to go into vision. That's really important. And so I want to start with a quote uh, that maybe you've heard me use before. I think it's a really helpful way to look as uh, 21st century North American Christians uh, at who we're called to be. Willard says this, the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. Willard's a philosopher, and so he can't write a simple sentence. It's like, it's impossible for him to to do it. But but what he's saying is basically this. Um, In all of the brokenness of the world around us and all of the needs that we see and all that's happening in the surrounding world, the, the greatest need, the most pressing thing, is for people who call themselves Christians to actually live like Jesus. Now that may sound pretty uh, counterintuitive. Like, why is it that uh, Christians, who are by definition to be like Jesus, that literally mean, means little Christs, why is it that Christians need to be like Jesus? That's a, that's a pretty, like, of course that's what Christians are doing, right? Well, unless you happen to live in 21st century North America in the Western church, where Christianity has become a way to identify yourself by religious orientation, um, sometimes by political allegiance, but very rarely, sadly, in a way that calls us to pursue after and therefore become like Jesus. You may find it interesting that the New Testament only uses the term Christian three times. Um, it's actually a negative term all three times. It's used kind of in a, a, a kind of a mocking sense. But the New Testament uses the term apprentice or disciple almost 300 times. The distinction is because Jesus, when he was teaching, and the early church as they were living, understood the call of Jesus to model our lives after him, not to uh, affiliate with him, not to um, move our, uh, our flag from one place to another, but to model our life after him, to live in such a way that Jesus would come out of us. 
And so what I want to do today is center back into that reality. If you've been around York Alliance for a while, you've heard a lot of this, but I think it's vitally important to come back to it. Uh, The great omission where that quote was pulled from, uh, I come back to almost every January and I read back through it again to remind myself, this is what it means to follow after Jesus. This is what it means to live the way that he commanded us. And I think it's important for us to regularly come back and center ourselves. And so to do that, uh, there's lots of different places we could go, but we're going to center in uh, the final teaching that Jesus did in the Gospel of John for his disciples. He called them together in what we know as uh, the upper room around the Last Supper when, when communion was instituted. And he taught them in John 14, 15, and 16 a variety of things about how to live after his death resurrection and ascension, what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the world that we now inhabit. And the centerpiece of that is this famous teaching from John chapter 15, one that will be very familiar to you. It's the core of what it means to live the Christ life. So I'm going to ask you to listen. Adam's going to come and read for us John 15, 1 to 17. Um, Even if it's familiar, which it probably will be for many of you, can I just ask you to listen as though you're hearing Jesus speak these words to you for the first time? John 15, 1 through 17. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so, I, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends, and if you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I have chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit shall abide. So whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Thanks, Adam. Would you pray with me? Jesus, would you give us the grace to hear these words? and to live into them. 
not just know them, be able to repeat them, to be familiar with them, but to live into them. And so teach us, Lord. Our hands are open, the Bible is open before us, and our hearts and our lives are open before you. Guard my words that they would come from you alone, that the words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the words that come from your spirit would remain, that we would encounter your truth in a way that would change us, that we, we recognize the need to be transformed by your grace. We know our brokenness. And so, God, we want to be like you. Beholding the glory of Jesus, may we be increasingly transformed into his image. Amen. Amen. So what I want to do is walk through this whole idea of apprenticeship. I want to uh, first look at what it means to choose to be an apprentice. I want to spend a decent amount of time on living the call of apprenticeship. That's really the heart of what I want us to address this morning. And then what it means to invite others into apprenticeship, because the truth of Jesus and the work of Jesus is never meant to end, to terminate on us, but to flow through us. We should be a a conduit to the world around us. And so we're going to look at choosing apprenticeship, living apprenticeship, and inviting apprenticeship. So if you're in John chapter 15, which you should be, stick your finger there. We're going to come back there in just a minute and flip to Mark chapter 1. We're just going to do a quick narration through the beginning of Mark. Uh, We're going to dig into some of these passages more in the weeks to come, but I want to take you first to uh, Mark chapter 1. As Mark lays out his gospel, he starts with his intention, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and he quotes the prophet as kind of a framing of what he's about to talk about. And then he gives us a narration of Jesus uh, coming into his adult ministry. And so that leads him towards a narration of the baptism and then the temptation of Jesus coming out of the baptism All of those things narrated for us with no words from Jesus himself. So the first time we hear Jesus speak is all the way down in verse uh, 15. So I'm going to start in verse 14 and then uh, read through uh, verse 20. Mark writes this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And I'll pause there. We're, we're going to look at that passage quite a bit more in a lot more detail here in a couple weeks. But this is the, the thesis statement that Mark is putting into Jesus' mouth. It's the first words that he has. And uh, he's saying, like, this is the heart of the ministry. Like, everything that Jesus is about to do is built around that statement. So he says, there's, there's good news. There's a gospel that's here. You're to turn, repent, and believe, step into a new way of living because the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God is at hand. This is all happening. This is not going to happen. This is happening now and will continue to move forward. With that in mind, this is what he says then, verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending nets, and immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. There's a couple cultural things happening here that are uh, somewhat invisible to us in 21st century North America, so let me just pull out the the two of them. Uh, As Jesus comes and he calls these fishermen, uh, 
dirty, stinky fishermen out of their fishing boats and immediately calling them to follow him. Uh, the idea of leaving both profession and especially, this would have for Jewish readers been really profound, leaving behind their father and just following after Jesus, like that's, that's a, a, a very unique and offensive thing that's happening. Like this, this, um, this move away from family and this move away from the, the little bit that they owned would have been shocking to early readers. But maybe more shocking than that is the fact that Jesus is a rabbi. We know throughout the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as a rabbi both by those who are seeking to follow after him and learn from him and those who are opposed to him. He's recognized as a rabbi. And as a rabbi, one of the things that rabbis would do was invite apprentices, disciples, people who would follow after them. But there was a process, and it was a pretty in-depth process. I'm just going to skim the surface of it this morning. Um, What would happen is boys, young Hebrew boys, would memorize, let me say that again, memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Anybody read Leviticus recently? Like, it's a It's a great time to memorize that, right? And this is every single Hebrew boy would memorize, memorize Genesis all the way through Deuteronomy. So there's these five chapters, they're memorizing them. Now, a whole bunch of them at that point, maybe what we would call like second or third grade, they would tap out. They're like, seriously, Leviticus was enough for me. I'm done, right? And they're just like, they're they're backing out. But some of them, the, the, the top couple percent, would keep going, and they would memorize what we would call the rest of the Old Testament. So the, the prophets and the wisdom literature, they would, they would soak in it. And, and the really, really good ones that are the top of the top, they would start to study the rabbinical interpretation. So they would start to study things like, how does this psalm relate to this part of Leviticus? Or how does this piece of the wisdom literature relate to this part of the minor prophets? Or what was Isaiah talking about when he spoke these words? Those kinds of things. And they would start to really dig into that. And then what would happen is that these best of the best, who are studying not just the entire Old Testament, but the interpretation of the Old Testament, they would come to a rabbi that they respected, who would be standing in front of them, or I'm sorry, sitting in front of them, and they would come and stand in front of that rabbi, and they would have like an oral exam, like, like a, a, the kind of exam that you cannot even imagine stepping into. They would be grilled by this rabbi, who'd be saying things like, so how does this part of Job tie to this part of Micah? And they're like, what? you know, crazy stuff. You know, they're tying all this stuff together, asking all these interpretations. Uh, how does this rabbi interpret, and why is that right, or why is that wrong? And at the end of that, for the best of the best of the best, that rabbi would stand up and would say simply, follow me. Does that sound familiar? Because what Jesus said to these fishermen is completely culturally inappropriate. Here's a rabbi with some dirty, stinky fishermen that clearly tapped out at Leviticus. Maybe they got it, maybe they didn't get it right? But he comes to them and he says, hey, you guys, follow me. And they do. Profound. Before we get into that, go just a couple pages further to Mark chapter 2 because there's one other calling I want you to see. This is uh, in verse 13 of Mark chapter 2. 
Jesus went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now this is getting a little funkier because the fishermen are not qualified, very common people, and they're probably dirty and stinky, but they're amoral, meaning they, they don't seem to be especially righteous, but they also don't seem to be especially unrighteous. They're just neutral. But Matthew, Levi, who will be called Matthew, is not amoral. He is immoral. If you've been around church for a while, you know tax collectors were hated in early Israel, and they were hated because they were, they were tied in with the empire. Rome would give them a license to collect taxes, and the way that they made money was they would charge the Roman taxes plus whatever else they wanted, and you would have to pay that because they were backed by the Roman military. Like, you got, you got centurions that are enforcing this, right? And so these are traitors. I mean, these are, these are guys who have made the determination that they're going to align with Rome and not with Israel, not with their, their fellow Jews, And Jesus goes to Matthew, and he says, you, follow me. So there's a couple things that we're learning. One, the qualification of a disciple, regardless of how we understand the call of discipleship, the qualification of a disciple does not seem to be knowledge, because they didn't have it. Does not seem to be morality, Because Matthew was the opposite of that. It seems simply to be willingness. Jesus was glad to call those who are willing to follow. For so many of us, we're uh, we're not ready yet to follow Jesus because we have to learn some more, we have to gain some more information, we recognize that we're deficient in this area or that, Or, very likely, we're saying, once I clean my life up, and once I fix that, and once this thing's taken care of, then I'm going to follow Jesus. Let, let Let me tell you really clearly, Jesus was not interested in that. He was calling those who were willing. There was not a process. There was an invitation in. But here's the other thing. There was a clean break from the past life to the new life. The boats were left behind. Zebedee, poor dad, was left behind. The tax collector booth, left behind. There was a clean break from one to another. The closest parallel that we have in our current world would be an apprenticeship of some kind of trade. So if you were going to apprentice after an electrician or a plumber, that would be the closest to what Jesus is saying. He's saying, come follow me, and they're literally lining their life up behind him. Now just imagine... The distinction between Christian in the way that we think about it and apprentice is kind of like this. Imagine you've been apprenticing after a plumber for the last three months and you wake up one morning and you think, huh, you know what? I just realized something. Over the course of the last three months, I've been getting up at 5 a.m., packing a lunch, going and following this guy, crawling underneath toilets and sinks and plumbing new house construction. Huh, I never realized that. I didn't know I was doing that. Huh, I guess I must be an apprentice. Like, that's foolish, right? You would, nev- you would never do that. There's a binary choice. You either do it or you don't do it. There's no in-between. If you choose to be an apprentice, you're an apprentice. If you choose not to be an apprentice, you're not an apprentice. 
But we think about Christianity not in terms of pursuit, but in terms of belief. Over the course of a couple months, I think, you know what? Maybe I actually do believe in Jesus. Maybe I actually do think that some of this stuff is real. And, and I'm not downplaying that part of the process. I'm simply saying that's not what Jesus meant when he said, follow me. There was not an intellectual assent, a belief, that was the heart of what Jesus was calling people into. Rather, there was a life that was invited. There was a, a calling that we were to step into. Why is it that our lives look so dramatically different than the lives we read about in the book of Acts? I would argue it has nothing to do with the difference in the way the Spirit's working, nothing to do with the difference in the culture, and it has everything to do with our level of intention. We haven't chosen to be an apprentice. There's a binary choice, and we need to make it. William Law, who was a Puritan writer, wrote a book called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, which would not make it through a 21st century publisher. They would not be good with that. But he wrote with the long title, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. He said this, if you will stop here and ask yourself why you are not so devoted as the primitive Christians, that's the term he uses for the early church, uh, not so devoted as the primitive Christians, your own heart will tell you that it is neither through ignorance or inability, but purely because you never thoroughly intended it. Interesting. What law is saying is, when we intend to follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit is more than sufficient to, sh to change us, to transform us. The reason we're not transformed is not because we're unable to be transformed. It's because we've never intended to be transformed. So I want to jump from there, this choice of apprenticeship, into what it means to live as an apprentice. Because if we're called then to follow after Jesus, there's a pattern that we need to step into. And that's going to take us back to John chapter 15. So you can flip back to John chapter 15. And um, I'm not going to read through it again because Adam did an excellent job of that. So I'm just going to uh, uh, allow his reading to stand for itself. But I do want to walk through the, um, the process of what Jesus was talking about. When we talk about apprenticeship, not original to us, but you've heard me say over and over again, there are three actions to an apprentice, right? You're, we are called to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do the things that Jesus did. That's, that's what we're called to do. So the actions that we're invited into, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what Jesus did. So that, that's a great way to outline John 15, 1 to 17. So if you look at John 15... From one to uh, roughly four or five, you're going to see Jesus say over and over and over again, abide in me, remain in me, dwell with me, be, be in my presence. Now remember, he's talking to his disciples, subsequent to salvation, and he's saying, the primary call that you have is to be with me, to spend time wherever you are in whatever you're doing to be with me. He's not saying go into a corner, light a candle, and meditate, although that's a beautiful thing to do when, you're, when that's the part of your rhythm. But he's saying in all times, be with me. Constant, the way I refer to it is that we're called to be two in two places at once. So whether you're in traffic on Route 30, whether you're at home cooking dinner, whether you're at work, you're also in the presence of Jesus. So I'm sitting in traffic and in the presence of Jesus. I'm at home cooking dinner and in the presence of Jesus. I'm interacting with my kids, 
and I'm in the presence of Jesus. Two places at once all the time. There's this invitation back in, and it's all of life. The challenge that we have is that our mind goes a different direction. And so we're called back in. Again, this is maybe my very favorite Willard quote ever, so I'm going to share it with you again. Uh, It's a little bit long, and it's Willard, so it's a little dense, but really helpful, I think. Uh, He says this, the first and most basic thing we can do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God. That's one of my very favorite phrases. But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. I love it because what he's saying is there's there's a habit that we can enter into that invites us into this rhythm of being in the presence of Jesus. We're constantly called to bring our minds back. And we're not forced to dwell on things less than him, but we can develop a new habit that draws our heart towards him. So we're first called to be with Jesus. But then Jesus is going to keep talking, and he's going to say that we are called to become like him too. So uh, if you keep going, what you're going to see is that call to abide in him is going to transition to a call to bear fruit from him. Right? He's going to start to say, if you abide in me, you will bear fruit, and apart from me, you can do nothing. So there's this call to not just be like Jesus or become, be with Jesus, but to become like Jesus, to start to live differently because of that. Now, the challenge we have is that we tend to be an intellectual people who approach the gospel from our brains. So we tend to think um, our primary call is to get what we believe to match how we act. And, and let me simply say that acting like you say you believe is a good thing. I'm totally in favor of that. But if that's all we do, we try to match our words and our works, what we're going to find is what I call white-knuckle Christianity. You're going to be constantly holding on tight and trying your best to not sin. When Jesus talked about the kingdom, he always talked about what was underneath. So he would say, like in Matthew chapter 5, he would say, you've heard it said, do not murder, because that was the law, right? You, you know that law because you memorized Leviticus, you know. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, don't even hate someone in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. They knew that. That was a command. But I tell you, don't even look at a woman lustfully. And all of a sudden, there's this thing that's going on underneath. So there's a graphic here I want to show you. Um, it, the, the problem that we have is that words and works are above the surface, easy to see, and uh, therefore within our easy control. But what Jesus wants to do is change what's underneath the surface, our wants, and when our wants change, when our desires change, all of a sudden we're not white-knuckling anymore. It starts to be easier for us to love our enemy than it is to hate our enemy. It starts to be uh, easier for us to look upon someone in a way that honors them rather than dishonors them because our desires are changing, because God's doing something inside of us. This process of becoming 
is what Jesus talks about when he talks about bearing fruit. There's this transformation that has to happen in us, but it has to happen at the desire level. So you've heard me say before, I'll uh, try to make the story short, the, uh, the, the beauty and glory of ice cream is a great way to think about this, right? So because there are three things in the world, um, apart from my wife and children, that I really deeply love, and that is burritos, buffalo wings, and ice cream. Love all three of those. And ice cream is the worst because it's inexpensive, and late at night, there's this draw. Like, I don't, I rarely get the draw to ice cream at like 2 p.m. It's always like 10 o'clock. But see, there's this problem because I'm nearing 50 now. There's this thing that happens, like every scoop of ice cream I put in my mouth immediately becomes fat. I don't understand how it works, but it like happens immediately. So I know like this is not good for me, right? And so imagine, finish eating dinner, a nice healthy dinner, grilled chicken and vegetables. It was great. And then I go to the computer and begin to do immediate research. What happens when you eat ice cream late at night? Oh, it's terrible for you. And I find all the different, I'm bookmarking pages, and I'm understanding all of the information. Here's what's happening in my body. Here's what happens when you get old like me, and here's all the problems that's going on. Like, I got it all laid out, right? Understand all of it. 10 o'clock at night, shut the computer, all of the knowledge fresh in my head, and where do I go from there? Right to the freezer, right? I, I go to the freezer, why? Not because I don't know it's bad for me, but because I'm hungry for ice cream now, right? I've, I've worked up an appetite doing all that research, right? And, and so I go, and not only do I get the ice cream, but I do the thing that every single article said not to do, which is rather than get a small bowl and put some ice cream in there with portion control, I get the entire container and a spoon. Why do I do that? Because I like it, right? Because I have this, this want. So this, this deep thing inside of me is driving me towards something that I know intellectually is not good for me. That process of transformation is the work that Jesus desires to do in all of our life. Changing the insides so that the outside starts to match. Jamie Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, uh, maybe does the clearest job of kind of walking through those desire changes. He says this, Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with him, to want what God wants to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. This means, now listen to this, that discipleship is more a matter of reformation than acquiring information. This means that discipleship, apprenticeship, is about being changed, transformed, not just gaining more knowledge. Jesus says, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. You will become like me. But then Jesus goes on to say, not only that, but you'll actually do what I do. This is my command, that you love one another just, I has, just as I have loved you. And he goes on to talk about laying down life, laying down our lives for our friends, loving the way that he loves. There's a flow that comes from being changed into his image, becoming like him, we naturally start to do the things that he did. And, and the challenge that we have is that we tend to jump in to the most difficult things. We, we tend to jump into, I'm, I'm gonna work really hard to like love my enemies and raise the dead. That would be great. When like what Jesus has called us into most often is basic hospitality, loving people the way that he loves people, 
inviting someone over for dinner. Like it doesn't have to be complicated. But there's this heart change that starts to happen within us as we start to do the things that Jesus did. Being an apprentice is not primarily about us having new knowledge or right knowledge. Being an apprentice is about an intentional decision to model my life after him, that I would be with him, become like him, and do the things that Jesus did. And as we do that, there's an invitation that our life should be to the world around us. I'm going to ask you to turn one more time to Matthew chapter 28. Famous passage at the very end of Jesus' life, right before he ascended to the Father, uh, following his resurrection, he gave his disciples a really clear command. We call it the Great Commission. You've probably heard that language before. Let me just read for you, starting in verse 18. Jesus came to them and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you're familiar with that passage, there's probably a couple parts of it that you're really familiar with. There's a call to go to all nations, right? You probably have that sense if you've been around uh, Christian Missionary Alliance for a while, York Alliance for a while, you've heard that call out into mission. And you've probably heard the call to make disciples and to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're going to see that happen in just a little bit. So those, those rhythms make sense to us. But right at the beginning of verse 20, I just want to read a phrase for you. I want you to try to think about what this means. Teaching them to observe or obey, depending on your translations, all that I have commanded you. And we hear that. We tend to think so my job is to teach the commands, to make sure I'm teaching the Bible so that you understand what the commands are. But that's not what Jesus said. He says, teach them to observe or obey. Teach them how to live like me. How do we do that? What's that process like? Well, we're going to take the next 10 weeks to unpack that. Um, but in a, in a simple way, what Jesus is saying is, Live those three actions of discipleship, being with him, becoming like him, doing the things that he's doing. Live those things in such a way that your life becomes an invitation to the world around you. That you're inviting people into that same simple lifestyle to be apprentices of Jesus. Again, not to believe in Jesus, that's true, that's, that's, that's good and important, but to live as an apprentice of Jesus, to live a life shaped around those actions. Peter, in uh, the letter of 1 Peter chapter 3, says that you and I should always be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. And the hope that we have is the continual transformation of our life. Because the things that people are seeing in us are not what we know in our head, but how we live with our life. When people ask you questions, it's probably not a question about belief. It's a question about action. Why do you live like this? Why do you love like this? Why would you make this decision instead of this decision? They're want-level questions, not words-and-works-level questions. So how are we ready to give an answer for the hope that we have? Well, I'm going to wrap up this morning with a story, a video story, 
from a lady that many of you remember. Uh, she used to worship with us on a pretty regular basis. Her name's Mindy. Uh, she'll describe a little bit about her journey for you. Um, but Mindy's going to talk a little bit about that idea of giving an answer for the hope that she has. You'll see that she talks a little bit slowly along the way. She'll explain some of why that is. So would you give your attention to the screen as she tells her okay. story? Hello, your clients. I'm Mindy Reynolds. I miss you so much. I wanted to let you know a little bit about my illness, why I don't walk, I can't walk. Well, about eight years ago, I started getting this ice pick stabbing headache, but it started two days after my father passed away. So I thought it was grief. But after three weeks of it, I thought I better have the doctor check me out. So I went to my doctor and he said, yes, it could be grief, but I don't want to miss anything. And so he ordered a brain MRI of me and it came back to him and he said, I don't know what's going on, but he sent me to a neurologist here in York. And the, when I got to see the neurologist, he said, well, you're over my pay grade. And he sent me down to Johns Hopkins and they knew what they were looking at. Um, it's called leukodystrophy. Don't Google it. It's all depressing. Because I had never heard of it before either. So I thought when I did Google it, I found that I was one of seven women in the world who has it. And I said, good grief, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't use drugs, I don't eat gluten, I don't even drink coffee. So I started having gluten and coffee from time to time when I feel like it. And there's no treatment or cure for what I have. It's just going to get worse. I am now right about middle of my belly down. I'm numb. I have no feeling. But the second time I went to see the doctor in at Hopkins, he said, how are you doing with your diagnosis? And I said, well, I can see God getting me ready for this years ago. And he leaned forward and said, tell me what you mean by that. Well, there's a verse, I think it's in Ephesians, that says, always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks for that reason, for the hope that you have inside. 
Well, I wasn't ready. I kind of went, oh, and muttered something unintelligible. But now I can tell you the reason. I had separated from my husband, my children's father, and we went to live with my parents in New Cumberland. And I was teaching them that we can always trust God to do the right thing, even when we don't understand. And I said that to them every day. We can always trust God to do the right thing. And little did I know, as I was telling them, I was telling myself as well. So, we were living in New Cumberland, but I wanted to keep them at their awesome school, which was Logos Academy in York. So I would drive them all the way down to York every day to go to school. And you know, if you have children, when you get children in the car, they fight. You kicked my backpack while you touched me. And they just, and I was saying, Lord, I am not going to make it to York without killing us or someone else. With this going on in the car, please give me an answer. And he did. So each day, each one of us would name three things we were grateful for that day. And they had to be specific to that day. They were not allowed to say, Mom, Dad, and the guinea pig. And I was not allowed to say, Sophia, Ava, and Mia, which are my three daughters' names. They had to be specific to that day. And that changed the tenor of our car ride, and it changed our attitude for the whole day. And that's the only thing over which we have control. We think we have control over everything in life, but we don't. What's the answer to the hope that she has? It's that God is good and he can be trusted. Even when I don't have any feeling from my belly down. Even when I'm one of seven people in the world who have this, this, this disease. God is good. He knows what he's doing. I don't have to understand it. But I can be thankful for what God has given to me. The way that we live, being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing the things that Jesus did, 
It's the heart of what it means to follow him. And as we follow him, we have the opportunity to invite others into the journey in a simple way. Come with me as I spend time with Jesus, as I become more like him, as I do the things that he did. I want to pray over us and give us a chance to respond in song. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come up. They're going to lead us in just a minute. And as they do, let me just uh, ask you a few things. One, first and most important, have you chosen apprenticeship? Have you moved from an intellectual belief of who Jesus is to a life devoted to following after him? And let me simply say, if you made that decision years ago or you make that decision this morning, there will be times, probably starting like, you know, five minutes after this service, where you fall short of that. That's not the point. The point isn't whether you do it perfectly or not perfectly. The point is, have you determined to orient your entire life around Jesus? And if the answer is yes, then you're constantly, we are constantly bringing our hearts back to that. You either determine to follow him or not to follow him. There is not another choice. And so the question is, have we decided to follow him? Have you decided to follow him? And if the answer to that question is yes, then the follow-up question is, can you see the fruit that Jesus talked about? Do you see some of the stuff that's being generated? And if your answer to that question is, the first question is yes, absolutely, and the second question is no or I'm not sure, can I encourage you to get into a kind of community where people can honestly look at you and encourage you because you need to see the fruit that's coming out of your life. And if you're following after him, there is fruit. If you remain in me, you will bear fruit, and apart from me, you can do nothing. So there is fruit coming out. You may not be able to see it because you have a whole bunch of stuff that comes from a family of origin and the way that you view yourself and different things that happened over the course of life. So you may not be able to see it, but people around you can see it and you need to hear about it. And so make sure that there's a community around you that can walk with you to point you towards him. And then the last thing is, is your life an invitation? Sure, are you ready to give an answer for the hope that you have? That's, that's vitally important. That's the call of First Peter. Mindy didn't quite quote it right, but you know what she meant. It wasn't Ephesians, it was First Peter. But are you ready to give an answer for the hope that you have? That, that's important. But maybe the question before it is, are you living a life that would beg the question? Are you living in such a way that people would ask? Not everybody's going to ask all the time, so don't feel bad if you're not getting the, answer, the, the question 15 times a week or whatever. But there should be a life that you're living that would beg the question from some people who know you pretty well. Why do you live like that? Why do you act like that? Why'd you make that decision? Is your life an invitation?